Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Beagle Podcast. I started this podcast almost four years ago, and my sole mission was to convince Nick and Courtney Rowley to be guests on this podcast. I've I've fulfilled that mission. So after today's podcast, we're shutting it down and we're no longer <laughs> we're no longer doing doing our podcast. I am so excited to have these titans of the industry on this podcast. And I'm even more thrilled to have Daniel Bidigary joining us. He's the managing partner for trials, or excuse me, managing partner of trials, trial lawyers for justice in Montana. And we're going to talk about Man- Montana today because of some interesting things that that intersect with what's happening in California and, and just some of the principles that we're going to get into today and, and discuss. So thank you guys for being here. Let's just jump right in. All right. Nick, Daniel, I want to start with you two. The Fairness Act is a near and dear initiative uh, to all three of you. And we actually reposted a podcast, Nick, that you had done with Brian Miller at Nation State of Play back in September. And I think it's one of our highest viewed podcasts to date, uh, which was fantastic because it's just getting the word out about the Fairness Act and what's going on in these states that have these caps on damages. Can you guys explain what this is and what you guys are trying to change? Well, we're going to try to make it so that it's fair. Actually, Nick is getting ready to start a trial on Monday where a young man, 17 years of age, lost his vision. And if Montana law on caps stays in place, all he can get for non-economic damages is $250,000. And that's just not fair. It's not right. Yeah. So blind for life. Being blind for life as a teenager because of egregious medical malpractice. I had a defense... Um, expert and someone I, I have great respect for, look at this case and, and let, tell me, what do you think of it? And this expert who testifies predominantly for the defense, who's one of the most conservative neurologists I know, say that this is the worst case of medical negligence he's seen in his career. And the insurance company has offered nothing. This is a, a man who had swelling in his brain. He had hemorrhages in his eyeballs and papilledema, swelling of the optic nerves, that was shortly after Thanksgiving documented in the medical record, a neurologist was consulted and they put him on a diuretic pill and did nothing else. The neurologist didn't even evaluate him and didn't get him in to see a neurosurgeon to fix the increase in pressure in his brain until two months later. So he went totally blind. It's a very sad case. So his loss of vision for life, his loss of enjoyment of life, his suffering, pain, inconvenience, all those non-economic damages would be worth $250,000 if this Montana law is upheld by the Montana Supreme Court. It was put in place in 1995, but it's never been decided by any appellate court or any or the Supreme Court in Montana. California is different, though. California's was set in 1975, almost 50 years ago, a $250,000 cap. So the value of any of our children who are negligently killed by malpractice the third leading cause of death in our country, their lives are worth $250,000. Our parents who are retired, retired teachers, firemen, you name it, they're worth $250,000 if they're negligently killed. And if they're maimed, paralyzed, part of their life is ruined, their own loss of quality of life, those damages are worth $250,000. And that law hasn't been changed to the tune of one penny in almost 50 years. And in 
you know, Montana hasn't been changed to the tune of one penny in 22 years. No, 27 years. Sorry. So Why these do you are the laws that, that, that are in place in other states, too, throughout our country. And what we need to do is, is, is lawyers. I mean, we've taken an oath to stand up for people. It's not about making money. It's about fairness and access to justice, making sure that people can have their cases heard. When these caps exist, they don't get their cases heard. People won't take the cases. Lawyers won't take them. Um, they, they're just these people can't afford representation. So the only way they can get into a courtroom is through a contingency fee. And when you when you you know boil it down to the number of hours and how and the hundreds of thousands of dollars you have to spend to prosecute a medical negligence case, the I mean we're we're talking less than minimum wage and putting a hundred thousand dollars of your own money on the line to win two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Who in their right mind would go to law school to do that? So that's why these insurance companies put these laws in place. And then what you see is you see medical malpractice and the number of deaths and patients that are harmed go up, 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 up because there's no accountability. So what we need to do as lawyers is reach across state lines. Don't sit there and say, well, my cap's not, or my state's not capped. I don't have a cap in my state, so we're okay. No, because they're coming for you next. What we need to do is, is erase the state lines and start helping each other. That's what we're doing. You know, that's what we're trying to do in California, Iowa, Colorado, Montana, Texas, you name it. Why, why, is, why, is the, why is the magic number 250,000? Where do you think that came from? What's the purpose of that number? I know exactly where it came from. It came from, from the devil himself. He came up with it. It was Satan. You know, so he's in a dark, you know, down the insurance industry. You know, they, they report to somebody. And, you know, somebody controls them. And I, I, I believe it, it's probably Satan. It's more likely than not. Well, but back in, in 1975 in California, 250000 may have sounded like a significant amount of money. You fast forward to 2022 and with inflation and really deflation, that's worth nothing. And, and it certainly does. It pales in comparison to what these people suffer at the hands of, you know, this medical malpractice. It's just interesting that state after state continues to use that number as the number to cap damages. And it's really fascinating to me that it's that number. Like, why? Well, think about it. Why? Why? Because it's the number they've gotten away with. Right? They've got away with it over and over and over again. So that's a number that they pick. And then, yeah, if you tied it to inflation in California, it would be about um, $1,250,000 right now. But come on. You, you've got, you know, hospitals have, have insurance policies that go up to $50 million. You mean that the loss of a, of a child who's, who's given the wrong medication and negligently killed should be the value of that life should be capped. One size fits all 1.2 million. Then after attorney's fees and costs, what does the family end up with? Let's take a stay at home mom who has five kids and a husband. She's negligently killed. So she's worth, you know, 250 right now. Let's say it's increased to just 1.2. After attorney's fees, how does that get split up? Each of the family members gets a hundred grand after after she was negligently killed. I see those cases over and over and over again, but it's not it's not a hundred grand they get, it's like 20 grand that they end up with. It's horrible. And the only and, and it's not lawyers versus doctors. This is patients versus the insurance industry. Because the, the the doctors, they might they might buy into the propaganda that they're fed by the California Medical Association and and the insurance industry and their insurance companies tell them that their rates are going to increase, but it's not the truth. This, this changing this law isn't going to harm doctors or reduce access to healthcare. It's going to make healthcare better. 
You know, it's going to get rid of the bad healthcare providers that need to be that need to be out because the medical board isn't doing their job and they never have. This is on the ballot in California in 2022. Is that is that correct? It's going to vote. That's correct. We put up the money. It's it will be on the ballot, and it's um, California is a mail-in ballot state now. So every voter will be able to get a mail-in ballot and read the title and summary, which our polling shows wins. The title and summary is a good title and summary. That can be found on fairnessact.com for those that are interested. There's a ton of information on, on the website. Daniel, what are the efforts in Montana to change this? What's happening there? Well, I don't, there's no effort like what Nick has done um, in Montana. I think right now where it's headed is, you know, Nick or someone's going to get a good verdict and hopefully the Supreme Court might undo it. I think that's the best shot in Montana. And we think that the Supreme Court in Montana will undo the cap, just like the Supreme Court did in Kansas, just like the Supreme Court did in Oklahoma. We think that the Montana Supreme Court will do the same thing. So, and if not, then we'll put up the money and we'll do a ballot measure and reach out to the million people in Montana. Yes, the population is increasing, but I don't think the voting population is very much. We'll run a ballot measure and we'll get it kicked out. We'll change the law. Courtney, what can people do if they want to get involved, if they want to help, if they want to support this, this incredible mission? Well, of course, you can go to fairnessact.com, but I also think that education is such a big part of this. Um, so many people we talk to don't understand the implications of a cap and what that means in terms of just having access to the justice system and the fact that lawyers aren't taking these cases and therefore people don't have a way of getting justice um, because it's not worth it. Um, and also on the flip side is what we found with our friends who are doctors and the doctors that we work with is that they also don't quite understand how this affects them and how it, it actually could improve the medical system, medical healthcare system. And that, um, so anyway, so I, I think a big part of it is learning and then spreading the word, talking to your friends, having this come up at your. Looks like Courtney's frozen. Um, is she frozen for you, John? Yeah, she is. Well, that's, that's um, another thing we, we mm. need to work on in the future is, is the bandwidth of the internet in big sky <laughs> so here at our office in Bozeman with, with Daniel, the um, I'll tell you how people can help and get involved. We need your money. We, we need donations. We need people to contribute. We have um, some, some folks in, in Florida that listened to one of the podcasts and they reached out. They're sending half a million dollars to contribute to this effort. You know, we put close to six million into it and we're going to put a whole lot more and do whatever it takes. But we need money to, to fight the insurance industry and to educate the, the voters and to educate the healthcare providers. You know, the, the nurses will be on our side with this because they know they, they know mm -hmm. this law needs to change. They're the ones that see the medical negligence and the, you know, the deaths, the third leading cause of death in this country. And, you know, just getting involved, sitting and doing nothing doesn't work. Get on fairnessact.com and get involved. Spread awareness. Watch the movie that's going to be coming out. It's called Making a Killing. Get online and look up the name Kira Johnson, K-I-R-A Johnson. Look at her videos. Listen to what her husband Charles has had to say, you know, about what happened to her and how she slowly bled to death at one of the top medical centers in the country and find out how, how these laws discriminate against women, discriminate against minorities, 
and the, the disparate impact that this has on the lower socioeconomic class, which is getting larger and larger, you know, while the rich get richer and richer. So get involved, get educated and spread the word and donate. This is what I'll tell all of our listeners out there because there's attorneys and non-attorneys. A way to, to get involved is certainly to go to the website and make a donation. And don't think that your $20 doesn't go somewhere. What Nick and Daniel and Courtney are talking about matters because this is not a California issue. It's not a Montana issue. It's a human being issue. And if we don't change it, we're going to see this, this practice and this idea of, of caps just completely engulf the entire country. Here's what we did at our firm. So I'm going to give an idea to you, to you solos and, and small practitioners out there. How can we help? We don't have a half a million dollars that we can donate to something. Here's how you help. At the end of every settlement letter that we send out, we have a little blurb about the Fairness Act. And we tell our clients that we're going to put our money where our mouth is. If they'll donate any amount of money, our firm matches it. And so in addition to the personal donations that I've made and, and the people from my firm have made, we're now asking our clients to get involved and we're educating them to understand that it's not just a California problem and that it is a problem that is systemic and it's happening across the country. And so that's a way to get money aggregated and to fund this initiative to help people change the laws that are currently in place so that we see a better system that is in really essentially what the act is called is fair to those that are injured at the hands of medical malpractice. So that's one way you can do it. There's a million other ways. Nick, Courtney, and Daniel Wright, you got to get educated. You got to get involved. Your donation matters regardless of how small you believe it to be. But there's a way to aggregate the compensation or excuse me, the, the funds that are available to help push this initiative forward. I want to switch gears for a minute. Back in the fall of last Before year. Before you do that, can I just thank you? I had no idea you're doing that, Jonathan. Thank you. Oh, you're, you're yeah, welcome. Yeah, that's rad. Yeah, yeah. That was my little surprise. I wanted to show, I wanted to tell you guys about that before. Uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want that to be the reason that you guys agreed to this podcast. So I wanted to tell you on the podcast, but that is, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're combining efforts to get a, a big, big amount of money sent your way so that, uh, so that we can stop this uh, absurd cap on damage that exists. But I want to switch, I want to switch topics. Back in the fall of 2021, you and Courtney, uh, got in, uh, into trial in, um, I think it was in Bakersfield and it was about, it was a, the plaintiff was a guy named Larry Little and you guys pursued this case with a, a an approach that I think a lot of attorneys, me included, to be honest, have a tough time understanding and certainly putting into the hands of a jury and asking for damages on. And this is loss of consortium and loss of consortium for your non-attorneys is simply the idea that the loss of love and affection that your spouse uh, may have with you. Can you guys talk, Courtney, I want to start with you. Can you talk about the concept of loss of consortium and why it's so important in injury cases? Yeah, I think, um, we, we all kind of understand, or at least a lot of the lawyers on this call understand that the pain and suffering someone experiences after or during an injury is monumental. But for those of us who also live in families or have are in relationship, we know that it also takes a tremendous toll on the people around us. Um, most torts don't, most uh, actions don't actually include 
any recovery for the people who end up having to take care of the people who are hurt. I mean, nine times out of 10 with our cases, the people that are hurt are relying on their spouses, on their children, on their parents for care for years until they finally reach um, a jury. Loss of consortium is a claim that acknowledges the fundamental value of relationship, of marriage, of, um, of being a child or a parent um, in California. Um, and in different states, it's different relationships that, are, that qualify. And um, so it's about the loss, but uh, the, the experience of that relationship, that person's relationship. So um, the, the elements in California are love, loss of um, guidance, uh, loss of society. And, and there's a different, there's a couple different lists, a different list of, um, of elements. But um, I think what's most important about loss of consortium is that it honors the importance and the value of the relationship that we are in, in this, in these lifetimes and what happens when those relationships are damaged by an outside force. So I get that what I, what I fail to appreciate, and, and this is just me not being maybe as, as educated on this, this principle of law, but when someone's injured, don't you shift the focus away from them when you start talking about their spouse or their kids or family that's affected? Doesn't that hurt the, the pursuit of justice for the injured party? I think historically that was kind of the idea. And so a lot of us have always, you know, dumped the loss of consortium claim because what if it detracts? Um, I think that another way to look at it is that it enhances and further fleshes out and illustrates an injury. You know, it's really hard to understand what it's like for someone to experience a brain injury, but any of us in relationship know what it's like to have someone we love not you know, not be the same as they were or to be cruel to us out of nowhere and to have that experience of having something that we, that we got, having something of ours taken from us. And so actually what I found or what we found in, in a lot of cases is that loss of consor consortium can help us speak to jurors on different issues that aren't just the experience of the injured person. So as a wife, I can understand as a wife what it would be like, or at least I can imagine as a wife what it would be like to have my husband's life blown up, his body crushed, and for all of that to fall on me. So many of these women, um, and, and a lot of times it tends to be women, and it can be men too, a lot of times these women take on the brunt of the care. And so they're quitting their jobs, they're, they're losing their friendships, because it's a 24-7 job to take care of someone, including Mr. Little, including someone with what might be seen as just a, you know, mild traumatic brain injury can be so incredibly disruptive to a family. So from my point of view as a trial lawyer, what I love so much about loss of consortium is it gives me that in to have more conversations about kind of viewing the injury from different angles. And so more opportunities for people to connect with what it's like to experience an injury that maybe they haven't, you know, had any experience with themselves. I, I think it is malpractice in most cases to not include a loss of consortium claim when you have when you have the ability to bring that claim if you think about it um if you're trying the case with just one injured party 
then the jury has to listen to and, and hopefully connect with. We don't want them to base their verdict on sympathy, but we want the jury to take their own human experiences, their common sense, their values, right? And what their experiences have been and put that into the, into the blender and say, okay, I understand this. I, I understand why this is such a huge loss. But if you're putting all of your eggs in the, in the basket of that one person who's injured, you might have three or four jurors that just don't connect with that person who's injured. And also you've got the defense attacking their credibility. And they, they have all mm -hmm. kinds of different nasty ways to attack a person's credibility and make an injured person look, you know, dishonest, greedy, et cetera, especially in brain injury cases. They're, 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 they're easy for the defense to, to, to muddy things up and, and to trick the brain injured person or to, you know, have sub Rosa surveillance video. But if you have a spouse there, then the jurors are going to listen to the spouse and you focus on that human story. The defense isn't, they have no way to really defend that case because, because it's that spouse's personal story. And that spouse may be a lot more lovable and a lot more credible than the person whose brain has been injured or the person who's, who's there in a wheelchair or the person who, you know, who's, who's been damaged, but you know, there was a delay in treatment and there was this and there was that. And there are all the different holes that you can poke. But if you have the injured spouse says, listen, my my wife went out, went out that morning, dropped the kids off at school. You know, we, we switch, we take turns doing it. And um, she went to work. The woman that came home is is a different person. And this is how what life has been like with her. And this is what it's been like to co-parent with her ever since now. For better, for worse. Yeah, but this is worse. And it's not her fault. And it's not my fault. And it's not my children's fault. It, it's, it's the fault of somebody else who is negligent. And the value of that, the value of what I had in that, in that woman, you know, who went to work that day, dropped off our kids, is, was priceless. You can't put a price on that. And now she's changed and, and, and it's a forever change. Now, 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 look each other in the eye and say, say that's not worth millions of dollars. If, if we're going to put a price on something that's priceless, something that you can't put a price on. And that's what we do with loss of consortium. And then we get up and we have those stories told. Otherwise, if you don't have that claim, the jurors get instructed, hold on, the impact on the wife is irrelevant. Objection, your honor, sustain. Jurors are instructed, you know, don't, don't include in, in your verdict any damages for the wife or the family. Then your, you know, verdict is lower. Which is why consortium was written. You know, I, just because we are late to the party as lawyers, consortium was written to honor that, those damages, to honor what happens to the family. You know, and, and that's our job to bring that out and, and, to, and to bring that evidence in. And like Nick said, you know, a lot of times, I'm sure we've all had this experience, people who are injured and in a lot of pain can be hard to connect with. And that's a, a major understatement. Having Daniel, family in the case. Sorry to cut you off, Courtney. I was going to ask Daniel, how mm -hmm. do you know? How do you know when you have a loss of consortium? Nick brings up a good point. He says, "Look, it's damn near legal malpractice if you don't bring it when you have one." There's a lot of attorneys that are probably questioning themselves right now, watching this, saying, "I, I don't know if I've got one." How do you know? Well, you got to start with talking with the family members, um, but you can always start even with your own life, it, it start by reversing roles with a person that's suffered that loss. Um, 
that gets the conversation started for me anyway. Um, and then talk with them, get to know them, get to, get to understand exactly how this has impacted their lives. What's the law in Montana on loss of consortium? What do we have? It's very similar to what Courtney was uh, discussing. It's mm -hmm. loss of companionship, love, affection, guidance. Do children have a claim or just the spouse? Ch children have a claim. Spouses have a claim. Wow. In California, children don't. I'm asking Daniel. Daniel, um, you know, he's mentoring me with, when it comes to Montana law. I met him in 2004. We were classmates at Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyers College in Wyoming, same place where I met my lovely wife, Courtney, a lot of my best friends in this world. And I, I've, I've looked up to, to Daniel for so many years. He's just such an amazing lawyer. His track record is like I, I, I remember, you know, hearing about the cases he was doing, you know, and the results he was getting thinking, wow, wow, if I could just do like one case like that someday. And um, I'm really proud to, to be working with him and learning a lot from him here. Looking forward to doing some good stuff in Montana and other states. When you guys get a case and you look at the claims that have been made, and let's say loss of consortium is one of those claims, take us through the workup on that. I know you say talk, you got to talk to the spouse, you got you know, you to understand it, but, but give us some practical knowledge on how to work that up. And it can come from Courtney first if you want, but, but I think people are going to say they're taking notes and they're going to say, how do I get this worked up so that it's appreciated by the jury? Can, well, let can, me tell consortium you, is oh. in, in the, in the Larry little case, there's one person we haven't mentioned today and his name is Steve McElroy. Um, he tried the case with us. Um, he, he co-represented um, Larry little with me and Courtney represented um, Mrs. Little, Shelley. Now, Courtney stepped in for Ashley Paris, Steve McElroy's wife. Ashley was going to try the case, but um, she ended up, um, she had to go teach at the Trial Lawyers College and ask Courtney to try it. So Courtney stepped in and got everything from Ashley that Ashley had learned and then spent a lot of time with Shelley one-on-one. -on -one. But what we did to, um, what we all did to, to really learn this human story was we went out to Ralph Wiggis's ranch. Ralph is, is the lawyer that brought us in on the case. Great guy up in Bakersfield. Um, I think, think he's one of the, you know, I think he's, think he's been there just as long as, if not longer than anybody else practicing law. We went out to his ranch, all of us, with the little family. And we spent a couple nights there out at Ralph's ranch and just, just spent time getting to know him. And, um, doing what we call, which you've heard of maybe called psychodrama, where we do reenactments and we really work on developing the story. So that, that's where we really learned that the loss of consortium component of this case was huge and was going to be the way that we illustrate this injury um, to Mr. Little's injury to the jury is through the loss of consortium. And, you know, that, that's, that's what moved the jurors. But it took spending time with them one-on-one. -on -one regular clothes, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, going on walks, working, spending time, getting to care about them, love them. So when you guys say that, because you, you say that you guys speak uh, nationwide at conferences, you've written books, you really walk the walk. That's not just something you say. You guys literally go sit down with these clients in their dining rooms, in their living rooms, and just just be with them and learn not just their story, but what makes them tick, who they are and, and why they're, they're sitting there in the first place. Is that, is that a fair statement? 
we try our best on Sunday. Um, we're going to be in a, in a little, you know, double wide trailer in a trailer park meeting with this young, young boy who's blind because of COVID it's been tough, but we, we try our best to spend time with, with our clients that way. And um, if we can't personally do it because we're in trial and we're moving, then we have other members of our team who do that work, who, who do go spend time with them. So every case, clients get that one-on-one -on -one time. Um, I used to do it on every single case. I, I, I don't now. I try. I try my best. But going from trial to trial to trial makes it tough. And a lot of my trials are last. You know, I get a call on a Saturday. I'm picking a jury in another state on Monday. What do you think a young attorney could do? And I, I say young, I don't, I'm not trying to offend anyone. I don't mean someone that doesn't have some practice experience, but someone that maybe doesn't have comfort with loss, loss of consortium, what can they do tomorrow on a case where they say, I think I've got it on that case to get the ball rolling. What do you think, Courtney? Just call up, call up, the, call up the spouse and have a real conversation the way you would with your grandma or your auntie or something, you know, call up the person whose claim you think you have, which you probably do. <laughs> if you even think you have one, you do. And then have a nice conversation. What do you like to cook? What do you like to eat? What was it like before? Where did you guys like to go? How would he talk to you? Tell me about when you met. Tell me about what it was like when you'd go to the grocery store together. Who, who unloads the dishwasher? What's it like? And, and then you kind of just get into the finer details of what their life was and what their life is. And if you just ask flat out, how has it changed? You'll get some, you know, three or four word answers. Conversation is different. Getting to know someone, um, you don't have to have all the right questions, but the curiosity is more about the finer details. Um, and, and, and here's the other thing. When you get into those conversations, and the reason we talk about this, about spending time and connecting, it's not just the woo-woo of, you know, this is what you should do to be a good person. This motivates us. Trial and, and the work of working up a case can be tedious and long. It can go on for years. We just tried a case for the third time last week. It was excruciating, you know? What we do, all of us collectively, is really hard work and it takes a long time. And sometimes there's very little hope at the end. And so to stay motivated, to stay in it and to remain plugged in, these human stories and that connection for us is so important for our enjoyment of what we do. And that adds color and life to our work and ultimately raises the value of our cases. When you now have that story, let's say you've gotten the story, you've spent time, you've done the hard work in the trenches, understanding that, Courtney, how do you then get into voir dire, get into jury selection and start to kind of pre-frame that? How do you get those questions in front of a, a jury before you've even selected one so that you're not losing this idea of loss of consortium? Well, I think Voidir has two parts to it for loss of consortium or for any non-economic damage claim. Always start with your jury instructions. That gives you a list of words you can at least go off of if shit goes sideways, right? Affection. <laughs> What's your experience with affection, right? Um, but loss of consortium has that um, initial 
I don't know, what are they called? The things you get stuck in your socks when you go hiking. It has a few of those when it comes to how do you feel about a wife asking for money for her hurt husband? I mean, isn't it better or worse, right? Like, let's talk about that. And why would a kid get any money because his mom was hurt? You know, isn't that greedy and overstepping? And what, what we found, and a nice, um, a lovely extra piece of having a loss of consortium claim is the folks that might've made it successfully through the first round on the voir dire for the injury claim, who might've been a little bit reserved or keep saying, yes, they're open to hearing about non-economic damages. When it comes to somebody making a claim for a spouse or a loved one, that usually sends them off. And so there's a lot more cause challenges because people get kind of, you know, flipped out by the concept. But once that initial flip out occurs and everybody gets a chance to think about it, it's like, oh yeah, like why would it not, why would I be left out if it was my husband who was hurt? You know, why would I be left out if it was my mother who was hurt and I'm caretaking her or, or just simply I've lost that, that part of my life because of somebody else's negligence. So that's how the, the arc of the conversation goes within Voidier. But you have to identify the fact that you are asking for money and lots of it for someone who wasn't hurt. Nick, so you're really quick. Um, now we, we can do so much. Look at us right now. We're doing this through Zoom. You can have, say, you know what? Let's have coffee together. Let's mm. pick a time. And, and make sure, and if your client doesn't have the device, buy them one, buy them an iPad, buy them a computer, get them a phone that works with Zoom and, and set it up and have coffee, have lunch, have, have dinner, have supper, you know, and, and go over, you know, family photo albums. You can do so much now through Zoom. The, the, the silver lining of this whole pandemic is that we have found a way to communicate and connect and get so much more done in a day. I mean, yes, it can be burdensome because now it's like there, there, there's no, well, I'm sorry, I have a depot at, you know, 10 that might go a few hours. I'm, you know, I'm booked all day now. I mean, we can get so much more done. And you and know I'm, what, I've a story, a, a story from the, Zoom. a story from the little case is right before trial, I was meeting with Shirley and her husband kept cutting her off. Like I just did to my husband. Her husband kept cutting her off and then he would say things. He, he would have these little outbursts and she had told me about them, but I didn't understand. But as they were talking, he would turn to her and be like, why is your purse a mess? And this was not that guy. It, it was just kind of part of his injury is he finds little ticks that kind of get him. He, he can feel something inside. And so he looks for something outside, right? You know, a lot of us do that. Um, but his is amplified because of the brain injury. And he would just pick at her and pick at her. And each time I could just see almost like a child, or she would just kind of go further into herself. And then she'd try and put on her face again for me. And I said, Shirley, I'm going to book you a hair appointment. <laughs> and I booked her a hair appointment, not as her lawyer, but as another woman in the world, you know, and, and she went and got her. Courtney froze again. Courtney froze. Um, Shirley, her, we, we um, call her Shelly, and that's what her husband calls her, even though it's not her legal name. Her hair ended up looking very wonderful. But the point was, was she, she was able to get away and do something for herself. And what, what Courtney had, had learned during this meeting was something that I hadn't seen. 
when when we had all spent time together. But she learned that you know Mr. Little wasn't very kind to his wife. And the family members testified to that during the trial. Now, that might result in a lower jury verdict. It's like, what a jerk. What a jerk. Yeah. With the loss of consortium claim, it now becomes an item of harm, of damage that the jury must assign a dollar value to. So we're really flipping the script. Did that, Nick, did that unkindness come as a result of his TBI or was it? Hands down, hands down. Okay. Oh, hands down. When we did that weekend with them out at the ranch, spent those two days, we reenacted their wedding. We fully reenacted their wedding. We reenacted different times in their life and explored who he was. And it also turns out that Larry Little is the grandfather of Mitch Carter. That's the, the young man who I represented in the chicken suit case in Bakersfield who suffered a mild traumatic brain injury. Get I had Mitch. I had Mitch testify in, in his grandpa's case. That is what, what a full circle type of story. Yeah. Nick, I have, a, I have a question. If you'll indulge me just for a second, maybe you can do this with Daniel. No longer than five minutes, but your name is synonymous with brutal honesty, with connecting with people in a way that others just maybe struggle with. If you could do just a quick little role play with Daniel in some of the questions you would ask about loss of consortium, to a jury in, in jury selection. I think this will help people understand where you're going with this. They, they heard Courtney and she's got her, her approach. What's your approach? How do you do it? Well, um, we've gone through brutal honesty. Mr. Bidegary, I have a question for you. Sure. Um, you're married. Right. How long? 20 years. For better, for worse? Yes. What's your thought of, of a spouse coming in and saying, you know, I, I think that the reasonable amount of compensation is many millions of dollars for what I've experienced as a spouse because of the injury to my wife. Does that rub you the wrong way, even a little? It does, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I bet it does for a lot of people. Can we talk about it? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, like you said, it's for better or worse. Um, you take the good with the bad and, and, and they've been dealt a bad hand here. So I don't see why the spouse should get something. They're, I'm going to ask a whole lot of people about this, but can, can we all count on you to be that fair-minded neutral juror that, that both sides you know, should get? to decide the case for um, the person who was actually physically injured. Yes. And to, to decide what the value of, you know, the non-economic damages are, the pain, the suffering, the loss of enjoyment of life, the humiliation, inconvenience, so you'll have a whole list. Is that something that you can do? Uh, yes. That you will do? Yes. And will you keep an open mind? We're gonna be talking about many millions of dollars. It may turn out to be nothing, but- No, I'll keep an open mind. And is there any party that says, you know what, I don't care what the evidence is, you know, many millions of dollars just rubs me the wrong way for an injured person. Not necessarily for the injured person. Okay. But, for, but if, we, if I ask those same questions and saying, well, the spouse is entitled to that same fair-minded neutral juror who, who isn't um, gonna say, you know what? The spouse bringing the case, that rubs me the wrong way. 
I, it does. I, I would agree with that. Would it, would it be a bad idea to keep you on the jury if, if your job is to be neutral and fair and, and look at the value of the spouse's damages just as you would look at the value of the injured person's damages? Yeah, yeah I probably wouldn't be. It would be harder for me on the spouse without a question. Would it be accurate? Would it be your truth? These words. Money for the non-economic damages for the person that was injured, whatever that amounts to be, you can count on me is keeping a fair, open mind throughout this entire trial. I do not have any bias, prejudice, or opinion that goes against that type of case. Yes, I, that's, that sounds fair. Would your truth be with respect to the spouse's claim? You don't want me as a juror. I cannot commit to being that fair, neutral-minded, impartial juror in deciding the value of the spouse's claim because that rubs me the wrong way. And something inside me, I'm going to have a bias that's going to affect how I view the evidence, how I listen to the evidence. And it's just, I don't want to be a juror on, on that issue because I, it goes against my beliefs and how I feel. I, when you word it that way, I hate to admit it, but that's probably right. All right. And we'd talk to other people and, and say, and maybe I'd go to so-and-so, you know, someone I want as a juror and say, you know, in some countries, you know, you go out and injure, injure my spouse. Well, I'm going to go out and injure you. <laughs> no, eye for an eye, arm for an arm, neck for a neck, spouse for a spouse. Okay. I'm going to go do it to your spouse. Not in America. Not in America. We don't do it that way. The law has carved out what we do. And we have a jury decide the value of these items of harm and what they're worth. Mrs. Johnson, how do you feel about doing that job? Now, when Courtney does this for our, I've, I've seen her get um, 30 plus cause challenges granted with jurors wow. like Daniel. So think about it. You bring a loss of consortium claim. You get separate board our separate counsel because they're separate parties. You get all those cause challenges. What does that do for the injured plaintiff's case? What type of jurors are you getting rid of? So there you go. That's another <laughs> reason to include that claim. You can include That's that claim and present the case. And at the end say, you know, whatever you decide is appropriate, put down there, whatever it is. And if it's little to nothing, just make sure. What, what my client wants is to make sure that, that her spouse or his spouse is fully compensated to the tune of every dollar and that there's no discount and that it's not cheap. That's gold. You guys make this look way too easy, which it's not. I, I have a question I've always wanted to ask the three of you, and I'm going to get to ask it because I have you captive right now. If you could go back in time, we'll start with Courtney. If you could go back in time and tell the younger version of yourself how to pave her way in this profession, what do you tell her? Hmm. I think not with bricks made out of other people's approval. You know, um, I think when I, I run a, a group through trial by woman and we meet once a month and we're anywhere from 20 to 50 women across the country. And over the last two years, I'd say 90% have gone out on their own and not because we talk about it just naturally, kind of like popcorn. And every single one who has done that has found 
um, a better life, a better balance, and a better uh, income. Uh, I think that the old structures of what practicing law looked like um, no longer apply, especially after these last two years we've just had. And so if you're constantly going after what's, how do I get my name on the door? How do I get the company car? Um, and even, you know, what Nick and I had our conversation last week, are we going to peg our value to the last verdict or are we going to find our value internally with how we're living and the work we're doing and whether or not we're proud of ourselves? So I think, I think it would be something like that. <laughs> That's so good. Daniel, we're going to finish with Nick. I want to answer, I want to ask you that same question. What do you tell the younger version of yourself how to pave your way in this profession? Yeah, that's a deep question. I, I, as I was listening to Courtney, I, I wasn't thinking, but keep learning for sure. Keep, keep trying to be around, learn from people like Courtney and Nick, uh, Nick and I, we, our friendship started, you know, almost 20 years ago at Jerry Spence's trial lawyer college. If you surround yourself with the right people, the kind of people that Courtney and Nick are, uh, I think that's a huge step in the right direction. You're just going to get better. You're going to grow. You're going to grow as a person. You're going to grow as a lawyer. And, it, and, and at the end of the day, good people normally make good lawyers. Uh, so I love that. I for sure would tell them. To. Nick, what about you? What do you tell the younger version of yourself? Well, um, there, as Daniel just said, there are good people. There are also some bad people out there and stay away from them. Um, your gut tells you when somebody's bad and sometimes you, you work with them because, you know, maybe, you know, yeah, I, I'm working on an important case or I have a chance to do greater things because I'm working with this lawyer and I don't have the experience and I don't have the resources or have the ability and I'm getting involved with this case. Um, there's, there's a, a lawyer that, that I had really looked up to and, and um, trusted when I was practicing law in the beginning and at the end of the day, he, you know, took cases that I did all the work on and didn't pay me. And it was, it was pretty rotten. He's, he's been all over the news. But, uh, you know, and, and I just sucked it up eventually, kind of had to, um, because he was a real powerful lawyer. And there, there are just people out there that, that just aren't, you know, making your quality of life better and not teaching you how to, how to be brutally honest. Stay away from those folks try a lot of cases. And, and the one thing I'd say to myself is, listen, you can do it on your own. You can do it on your own. And if you believe in yourself, that's the most important thing. It's not what other people believe about you. If, if that's what you're looking for, that's then, then you're always going to be searching and you're never going to be good enough. But if you look at yourself in the mirror, you believe in yourself and you love yourself and, and, and don't need that external validation, then you're going to, you're going to succeed. And also, be proud of losing a case. You know, I, I, um, I was mentored by the most winningest trial lawyer in the country. And that's not the lawyer I was just talking about. That's a different lawyer. And so I always thought winning is what matters. You know, the, having never lost a case in all of these years. And um, a lot of lawyers that say that they're not really telling the truth. Be proud of trying tough cases and talk open and honestly about your losses and really reflect on them without, without being angry, but really looking at the hurt and then getting past that and saying, what, what can I do differently? Because if I look back at my history of all these great verdicts, 
they are because of some very great losses and lessons that I learned. And I think the, the last thing is, is really be brutally honest, most importantly with yourself. I, I, I'm so appreciative of the fact that you talked about losses because we throw out big numbers. You notice we didn't do that in Larry Little's case. People can go online and see what that verdict was. But I think people fail to appreciate how important the losses are in our profession. And I, I, it's so great to hear you say that. I end every podcast the same. Five, fast five questions. We'll go real quick so you guys can go uh, continue on with your day. First question to each of you. This is going to be fun because we've got Nick and Courtney, and then we'll get a different perspective from Daniel. What makes your spouse laugh? Courtney, start with you. Oh, man. I'm going to go with the first thing that came to my head, even though I don't want to. It's always something with farts and kids right now. <laughs> oh, okay, Nick, what makes your spouse laugh? Let's see. You know, when I get Courtney to laugh, it's the, you know, those are the happiest moments in my life. Because I can make my kids laugh all day long with dad jokes. And she just rolls her eyes, goes, oh, my God, another dad joke. And the kids, you know, the kids are like, you're so funny, dad. You're so great. Um, what makes Courtney laugh is being silly. You know, taking the taking the the guardrails off and, and not and, and just being free and just being silly. Being being a kid. You know, going, I don't know, we, a couple weekends ago, we went out on a hike and we played tag. And it was the greatest. Daniel, what, make, what makes your spouse laugh? Uh, when Nick and I were doing the role play, uh, we were role playing. I'm not married, so. Okay. <laughs> I so actually I'm... can't even answer that question. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll, we'll skip that question for you. We'll, we'll go right back <laughs> to you, though. We'll go, right... <laughs> we'll go right back to you for this question. Daniel very single, you know, successful, handsome, handsome available. Yeah, we you don't. Know? You don't need a dating app. You have this <laughs> podcast. He's out there looking for an honest, a brutally honest, <laughs> handsome man, born and raised in eastern Montana, salt of the earth, good human. Daniel Bidegary. I love he's it. He's open for a date. Okay, well, let's get to know Daniel a little bit more. Daniel, would you rather wear slippers or flip flops? Flip flops. Okay, Nick, slippers or flip-flops? Flip-flops. Same. All flip-flops. Slippers make my feet sweat. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, I'm not a slipper guy either. I just wanted to know. Do you, Daniel, we're going to back to you for this one. Do you prefer order or chaos? Fair bit of, I, I, I prefer order, but it seems like there's a fair bit of chaos in my life. So I've Chaotic order. Chaos. Courtney, what about you? <laughs> order or chaos? Maybe. Yeah, I'd like to pretend it's order, but we mostly just make order out of chaos around here. <laughs> Nick, what about you? Oh, man, I revel in chaos. Mm. You know, figured, it's got to be the right you, kind. Yeah, I figured you're, you would. Because it, it gives me something to fix. It gives me a purpose. Mm. And that's what we do. We deal with so much chaos, you know, and so many things being thrown at us. And to, and to be able to... Um, Find, find the truth and the love and the human experience within that. It, it gives me great purpose. Fourth question. Order, order is a facade. Yeah, yeah. 
what was my question? I had it. Oh, this was Daniel. In all fairness, I, I wrote this one because I knew Nick and Courtney do yoga. What is your favorite yoga pose? I do a little yoga. I haven't. COVID has thrown me off of yoga for a little bit here. So you got to get appointments and it's just hard to get in. But uh, I, I, I don't know about a pose, but I, I like any, any of the poses that include just breathing and just calmness and just letting your mind uh, just focus on just your breath. Courtney, favorite yoga pose. I love all of it. I think it's so good. I've watched Daniel do yoga in all sorts of different places. It's always wonderful to see a Montana. This is another part of his uh, dating profile. It's always wonderful <laughs> to see a Montana man who can do good yoga. <laughs> yeah. Nick, favorite yoga pose? Um, standing one-legged poses where you're doing something on one leg and, you know, shooting the other one out. Maybe um, even, even a, a standing tree pose or, you know, a... Uh, you know, pose where you're, you know, reaching forward and, and standing on your left leg and reaching your right leg back as far as you can, engaging your abs and you're in this difficult spot, you know, place, focusing on your breath, dripping sweat. It's hard as hell. You can think of nothing else. My, it, it's, the, it's the point in time when I, I'm thinking of nothing other than the, you know, moment that I'm suffering through and finding pleasure in that moment. That's the key right there, finding pleasure in it, embracing it. Okay, final question. We're going to start yeah. with Nick, and then we'll, we'll end with Courtney. Do you, Nick, do you think bullies know that they're actually bullies? Hmm. I think it depends on the bully. I think that young, young bullies maybe don't know. I think that, that men that bully women might not realize it, might not know. Um, there might be parents that bully their kids and they really don't know. They don't see it because they lack that perspective or they were taught that that's the way to behave. But, um, professionally, yeah, professionally also, some people were taught to be that way. But it depends on the bully. I, I tell you, the bullies that you stand up to and all of a sudden they change their tune. Mm -hmm. They know. They know. Daniel, what about you? You know, I, I think it's a function of emotional health. I think it does depend on the bully. Um, but I think Nick, as I was listening to Nick, I think he, he encapsulated it. I, I think some people probably can be triggered and, 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 and turn into a bully, not knowingly. Uh, but once they calm down, I think they probably realize they are, have been a bully or have acted like a bully. Courtney, final word from you. I think individually, sometimes people don't know, you know, we get swept up in the culture of fitting in or coolness, but I think systemically, which is where we all operate, they all know, they all know. That's why it's so effing hard what we do. <laughs> no doubt. Nick, Courtney, Daniel, thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. I will put all of your contact information up there. Daniel, I expect a flood of potential <laughs> suitors coming your way after this podcast goes live. So just thank me later. 